intrigued to connect more deeply to yourself and nature, we're talking about doing that with wild yoga today. Hello and welcome to the Low Tox Life Podcast. I'm Alex Stewart, your host, and today I have a very special return guest, Rebecca Wildbear, joining me on the show. And uh, she was on the show first, uh, show 171 on the Low Tox Life Podcast, if you want to look back in time, uh, discussing our connection with nature uh, in a broader sense and what that journey might look like. And today we're talking about it from the perspective of what I believe to be an incredible work uh, in the book that she's released this year called Wild Yoga. Uh, So it's not wild yoga like doing yoga at dance parties, although fun. (laughs) It is actually an invitation to connect with the earth and all of its magic, but also to connect more deeply with ourselves. And I think it's uh, kind of, it can be a bit scary for a lot of people Uh, women especially, very uh, outwardly serving, very um, accommodating, often masking our own needs or uh, important things we'd like to say or share about what's going on inside. And uh, really embracing our own wild nature can be an incredibly healing part of starting to bring some of that uh, deep confidence and deep connection out uh, by being our true selves. And there's a space uh, for that to look like whatever you want it to look like uh, is really important for me to say as we move into this conversation. So you don't need to go and live, uh, you know, in a yurt in the middle of the forest and start talking to trees every day. Uh, You know, there are many baby steps that Rebecca is offering in this book to explore and discover. And uh, in the show today, boy, do we go lots of interesting places. Uh, We talk about vulnerability. We talk about grief. We talk about flipping the idea of these things as weaknesses or things to buckle up and chin up and move on from. Uh, And she shares ways uh, to move through uh, grief that I found uh, hugely beneficial uh, in my own experience. And she also talks about the three Fs, feral, female, ferocity. If you're kind of excited and intrigued to hear what that might be all about, uh, I think you're going to really love today's show. So Rebecca uh, is the author of Wild Yoga, as I said before. Uh, And what I love about this book, and that's where we start the conversation, is the strapline, a practice of initiation, veneration and advocacy for the earth. But I also feel like missing from that is the inner work that she offers in this book, which is really magical. Uh, She's the creator of a yoga practice called Wild Yoga. So you can actually do an online uh, yoga course in Wild Yoga. And uh, one of the lucky Lotox Club members, which by the way, you can always check out on the Explore tab of lotoxlife.com if you want to join us, uh, is going to be winning uh, one of these online courses for them and a friend. Uh, And uh, I can't wait to actually dive in and see it myself. I haven't done it yet. Uh, But she's been leading Wild Yoga 
uh, program since 2007 and is also a guide in nature for the Animas Valley Institute, which was the subject of our first conversation. Uh, I love this woman. I think she is a huge gift to the planet and uh, I know so many people are going to be talking to me about this conversation. So I'll dive into that in a little second, but I just want to share our wonderful major sponsors. Uh, of course, you have all year round Oz Climate air filters and dehumidifiers, uh, an extra 10% off with the code LOWTOXLIFE. So this discount can be redeemed over the phone as well if you want to chat through the options or on the website ozclimate.com.au if you know what you need, uh, which we talk about a lot. Uh, You can always feel free to DM me or the guys at Ozclimate. They're so, so helpful. Uh, and something I want to mention when it comes to the air purifiers, the Winix air purifiers in their range are four or five stage filters, hospital HEPA grade, uh, plasma wave technology. There's a lot of pretty little filters being advertised on Instagram. And if you actually dive a little deeper into their performance, you'll find that most of them are two or three stage filters and don't really move the needle on your indoor air terribly much. So uh, that's really something to look out for. And I have to say the little compact four stage that we have in our bedrooms is a really good looking little unit and just tucks away nicely in a small bit in a, in a bedroom or a study. Uh, and I think looks great. Uh, so check them out and enjoy. And then for July only, we have for our US and Aussie listeners, one of my favorite natural remedies brands, the wonderful BioFirst are back. Uh, so you might have heard of them on previous podcasts, genuine natural remedies, uh, you know, talk about being inspired by nature as we're talking about today's show, uh, for skin issues, immune support and wellness. Obviously being the winter months right now here in Australia, I wanted to give a shout out to their daily health defense options. So you have the Manuka Defense Syrup and Spray. They're both actually delicious, by the way, if you want a little something sweet after a meal. Uh, They actually uh, cut that function quite nicely. Um, And then you have the extra soothing care when you need it the most, when there's a lurgy threatening to set up shop or if you need to up the ante, then you have the Manuka Soother Syrup with the adult and child formulations. There's absolutely no alcohol, no added fillers, colors, flavors, uh, just the high performance of nature packaged for you for delicious and easy use to really help uh, support your immune system over the winter. So I've shared in the show notes also some special things about the Manuka Soother and the Manuka Defense range. And your offer is actually not just for that range, although I wanted to shout out to that range given it's winter, you have 10% off when you spend $65 or more across the website. Uh, Your code is winter. You can purchase any products you like to get that offer. I just wanted to share those winter specific options for the Aussies given the time of year. So that's $10 off any order over 65 with the code winter at biofirst.com.au and you can select whether you're a US or an Australian customer. That's it. That's our sponsors. Let's head to this wonderful conversation exploring nature and connection to self through wild yoga. Hello, Rebecca. How are you? Hello. Good to be with you again. Good to see you. Well, yes, our last conversation took us so many places and I have a feeling it's going to happen again today as we discuss your new book, Wild Yoga. And I want to actually start by asking you about the byline because it is a practice of initiation, veneration and advocacy 
for the earth. That is a big call to put next to something that most people would hear yoga and think the nice little studio and the heater on and the essential oils burning and a a man-made structure that they're all collecting in. Wild yoga. Tell us, what is it? Yeah, thank you. What a great way to introduce uh, the idea. And you're right. The scope of what I cover in my book is is deep and it's broad. It's um, huge. Yeah. <laughs> the, the word yoga, I almost didn't put yoga in the title because of the fact that most people in mainstream culture link yoga to uh, yoga asana practice, meaning that when you say yoga, you mean, you know, going to a yoga class and doing the exercise, the physical practice of yoga. But uh, in the traditional way, in, you know, in the ancient way of yoga, it's a much bigger definition that the asana practice is like one, one branch on the tree. Yeah. There's a whole tree of other branches that are part of yoga. And really at the base, my book is a lot about relationships, uh, relationships with parts of life and parts of uh, the muse, the dream world, the natural world, our bodies, parts of life that most uh, humans aren't taught to listen to or attune to. So deepening our relationships and uh, also listening, a big part of it, like the art of listening. And yoga traditionally was about relationships, relationships to yourself and the world, kind of a journey of who am I and what is the world and how can we get relationship? And so I take yoga back to its ancient meaning, a much broader and bigger meaning than, than today. But I do it in a way that's very personal to my own journey and the different places that I've studied and practices that have led me at this time in our culture with what would be the most important conversations, practices, uh, transpersonal resources to attune to. Mm, beautiful. And and so that's where the advocacy for the earth piece comes in, the, um, the ecological revolution that you talk about as a part of a yoga practice. And that can be a bit of a mind-blown concept for someone just dipping their toe in the water of this conversation going, whoa, I was just going for my morning walk. What are we talking about here? So can you help us bridge that um, gap of understanding, if you like? Yeah, that's so great. Um, I I mean, I think most people want to be peaceful, just want to get through the day, you know, and it's revolution. What? That's not, you know, that's taking us away. Um, but but one thing that I posit in my book is that our health and well-being and the planet's health and well-being are linked. In other words, I can't just focus on my own well-being and kind of tune out the planet or everyone else because I am affected by what's happening in the world that I live in and what what's happening to others. And similarly, you know, I couldn't just focus on the health of the planet and not focus on my own well-being and health because I'm not going to really be able to do a great job of knowing how to best act or deal with the challenges ahead if I don't have the help of these others. So we really need these two worlds uh, linked and that they are connected. And if we're bringing ourselves back into balance in these times, I think ecological revolution is part of it. Uh, When we look at how am I going to help the humanity come back into balance with the earth? How am I going to stop other humans from harming the earth. Well, it's going to require a revolution of consciousness, uh, action, ways of being, ways of living uh, that's radical. 
Mm. And I'm so glad that you also emphasized you can't focus all in on helping the planet at the expense of your own health. It goes both ways because, you know, I've been in the education space in this area for a long time and I've seen the people who try to do the perfection thing or who are at rallies and demonstrations every single week and, uh, you know, you know, they freak out if the carrots aren't organic at their friend's barbecue or, you know, because it's not perfect. And and then you end up with this awful um, irony, I guess, of wanting to do so much good that you do harm almost it, to yourself, which means then the greater good is impossible to achieve because we can't fill the world from an empty cup. Yeah, totally. Exactly. You know, and, you know, our human minds are limited. We think we know what the right thing to do is a lot of the times. And, and sometimes we do, I mean, some things are kind of clear, like, you know, don't destroy the world we live in. Like, you know, that that's, you know, pretty basic. And how can we keep species and land bases alive? Um, but we don't always know how of it. Well, that's a nice idea, Rebecca, but how are you going to actually stop the the system of the machine of the world from running? You know, really, like what, what are you going to do that's really going to make a difference? And those are like the hard challenges we run up against. And that's where it feels like to me, our conversation with the planet, you know, with the earth, I wouldn't want anyone to save me who wasn't talking to me, you know, who wasn't actually you know, having a relationship with me. So that's where the relationship with these others are a big key part in, well, what is mine to do? And it's also why, you know, I say that the practices in my book, um, they start out really slowly um, and gently and invite everyone. I was, it was really important to me to make a book that was accessible to everyone. There isn't anyone who can't pick up the introduction, chapter one, chapter two, chapter three, read it, and really receives something from it, the practices. And if you go on, there's a steep learning curve, right? We move quickly and it's kind of intense. So it's okay to be where you are. And if the early practices are something that you need in your life to just keep resourcing yourself, then by all means do that. And it's a process. So we move on and as we get stronger, we can build our strength to do the more challenging things, which come towards the end of the book. The last section, Beloved World, is about bringing our gifts of the journey back to the world. But first, it involves going on the journey, the the journey of rewilding ourselves and the journey of the spirit and the soul. Mm, which we talked about quite a bit in the first chat that we had. Um, one of the practices you mentioned is stretching our consciousness, being one. Um, can you expand on what that one entails and share perhaps like another one that you're particularly fond of, especially in these earlier stages of people exploring this work. Yeah, I would, I would say, you know, in, in many ways, um, all of the practices of yoga are stretching your consciousness. I have a chapter, it's called chapter 17 and it it's entitled stretch your consciousness. And in that one, we cover you know, expanding to the consciousness of the natural world to such a degree that we can imagine being the others, that we could imagine being the eagle or the river or the mountain or the forest in particular. It also is expanding our conscious to shadow, the collective shadow in particular, personal shadows and collective, you know, what are the voices not being heard? What are the energies not being listened to? And uh, one of those, of course, I think of as the feminine. So I have in the next section in Stretch Your Consciousness, uh, Reconciling with the Goddess. 
which is a concept about um, how to call the feminine back into life and honor her voice, both uh, women in the living world, but also the feminine archetypal energy that lives in the world and in every person, regardless of sex or gender. And, you know, all of these practices of stretching your consciousness, you know, that's chapter 17, but they're all building up to that, you know, in, in the wild section of the book, we're deepening our, we're listening to the body as an intelligent wild animal being, we're listening to the natural world as an intelligent alive being that we can hear messages from, we're listening to our wild heart as something we can, um, you know, listen to. We're listening to our ferocity, you know, our ferocity has a reason and, and uh, uh, there's a sanity to it. Um, we're receiving the love of trees. We're actually stretching ourselves to experience forests as loving beings that we can receive love from. And we're stretching ourselves in the dream world, dream in the cave womb, you know, to, to incubate um, ourselves in the mysteries of what comes from the other world, you know, that we can live into the world. and. So the whole, the whole book, you know, and Holy Longing has even more, following the mystery of what you love um, and uh, opening to the sacred world. They're all, you know, they're all really ways to stretch our consciousness. And they do involve the feminine in, in large part. I consider, you know, there to be a yin yang in the world, like, our, you know, energies that balance each other out. Like there's an archetypal feminine and archetypal masculine energy and People might describe that somewhat differently. For me, the archetypal feminine is like a gestational listening quality. Like there's something, it's like a womb-like experience, like going into the earth and listening. And Deep connection. What, yeah. What intuitive, mm. what wants to emerge in the archetypal masculine energy to me is that active part that's like, okay, well now I have a vision and now I'm going to bring it alive. Now I'm going to, or now I see that the world needs that there's some protecting, there's some action that needs to take physically. I'm going to take that. So the two actions balance each other. And in, in our world, I think we're, you know, our, our dominant mainstream culture, there can be a, an out of balance uh, nature to doing, you know, to action that's not sourced in this feminine um, nature of, of listening and being gestational to make sure that what the way, the actions that we're taking are the most important. So um, I'm just kind of, my book is bringing that back into balance, stretching our consciousness to listen to all these other voices. And there's more than what I named darkness and vulnerability and, and grief. And the, the mm. Let's talk about that because grief, grieving, depression, or low points in our lives, let's say, they're often still so taboo and it's almost like we're trying to move on from them really fast instead of through them and be invited to sit in those feelings. And um, I often, I, I, I have grieved a couple of times really big grief in my life so far and, uh, and I remember feeling the need and the word that came to mind was the need to almost indulge that feeling it just really just get in there and be with it uh and to also listen for when it was time to come out of that grief cocoon and 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 step out and start reconnecting with other things other than myself and that grief that's just me kind of sharing a a, a memory of how it felt for me what is the power of grief 
sorrow, depression, what is the invitation there? And um, how do we know when to be fully in it and when it might be time to move through it? Because you offer some really interesting perspective in the book. And I think it's worth sort of fleshing out now because it's a subject that a lot of people um, almost feel ashamed to be too sad for too long or to be so sad about whatever. And, and it just feels really unhealthy when that's part of everything is all of the feelings, right? Totally. Like, you know, I see our, our heart is a wild creature. Mm. It feels what it feels, you know, and sometimes it might be inconvenient or we just wish we were feeling something different. We, you know, oftentimes our culture teaches us to quickly move past the difficult feelings, whatever they are, whether that's grief or sadness or, or anger, or, you know, what, you know, just move past it and, you know, get to the, get to the more up feelings, but really that's a loss because there's value in all of our feelings. They're, they're like messages too. And they're coming to us for a reason. And grief is just, is just one of those things that goes with love. You know, when we open our hearts to love, we we're, we're going to grieve because, you know, the one that we love. It's a package deal. Yeah. Really is. And I know in my book, I mention a lot in particular about earth grief um, because it, it can feel like sometimes the messages and feelings that we're receiving might be from the body of earth, that the earth is suffering and we're connected. So if we're feeling certain things related to what's happening in the world, they might be natural feelings to move through that help us gather visions or know how to act in response. And it's important to, to be with it. Sometimes grief itself or the feelings themselves can be like a portal. I talk about initiation and dreams as being initiatory. Emotions can be initiatory too. Grief can be such a big feeling that it can just take us into worlds where there can be visions and things that happen that we just don't anticipate. So sometimes, you know, when we can, if we feel resourced enough or have the space for just allowing ourselves to go in and say, it's, it's like a little bit like turning toward the nightmare. All right, grief, like have your way with me, you know, what's here? Like, let me just, I'll just feel it. And sometimes it can be helpful to do that on your own. There's also, I've participated in grief rituals. I write about them sometimes in a book. Sometimes it's helpful to do grief rituals in community. So there's a, a mm. space being held with others. Yeah. And, and what do we look for in that space of grief? Is there anything unhealthy about uh, being in it for too long in your view or, um, or not reaching out at certain points when maybe you need support through that grief? You mentioned community. Yeah. I, I mean, I would say it's good to be in community with our grief. Not maybe not every minute. There might be times mm. that we go into it, but for some, a period, you know, but to be, be in community with other people who are grieving or can at least hear or receive our grief, probably not such a good idea to be working with somebody who's trying to talk you out of your grief. But just, you know, being being in grief doesn't mean being out of relationship. It doesn't have to mean that. It can mean I'm grieving and I'm still connected. I'm still part of things. I don't have to um, feel guilty about that. I don't have to try and change that. It's just, it's what's happening here. Yeah. And so let's just say, let's bring it into um, um, something that people can, like, let's just say parents. 
you know, your teenager goes through their first breakup, their heart is completely broken. They feel like the world has ended that day. Uh, and, and a lot of parents that struggle sometimes to find the words, you know, we're especially Gen X, right? We're the Oprah generation of every freaking self-help book thrown at you from different angles of like all the different scripts that you need to use for all the, and it almost feels like that radical externalization of what to do has removed us from being able to tap into the truth of what to do. And it's almost like we need to find our way back there because we probably actually know what to do. I mean, you talk about this in the book a lot. It is on, honestly, the work feels like peeling back all the layers of the onion until we feel reconnected in every sense of what that word means, right? So in that situation, in our modern world, how would you guide us in what to do? And well, and part of it too is uh, it, it, you brought up you brought out that situation um, with a daughter that a child that has a has a breakup and yeah, or a boy. Mm. You know, letting them feel what they feel, I think, is is important. Just because somebody feels grief, though, it doesn't mean other things can't also be present. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes there can be humor. You know, you can look at the situation that some moments you could just laugh at the whole thing. Like this is, this is really hilarious. And, you know, when there's other moments brought in where other things or, you know, or, or a parent might share their story. I remember my first huge heartbreaking breakup or older brother or sister might share their story. And suddenly you're woven back into the human race that there is a loss here, but you're not, you know, some strange creature that was dumped, you know, you're just just part of the human race and, and things happen. Mm. Um, you know, one of the things I wrote about in my book in the grief chapter was being at the front lines and being grieving. So I was taking action to help the earth and I was grieving about what was happening to the earth. You know, sometimes our grief might involve stopping doing everything else and grieving just nothing else. But I would say grieving happens a lot of times alongside other things that we allow it to be here. It doesn't have to go away for us to be involved in the other aspects of life, but it can mm. be here it's one of the threads and one of the flavors of, of our reality, my reality, our reality culturally. Yeah. Beautiful. And, and vulnerability, I guess, as an extension of talking about grief, being sensitive is often frowned upon uh, uh, still, even though I feel like we're moving on from the chin up, come on, move on. Like, I don't think we're still there in that kind of army like, dynamic, uh, which certainly I feel has peaked, but there is still, it takes a lot to show vulnerability. And sometimes we don't even have the words to say we feel vulnerable um, or sensitive to a certain subject. And yet you talk about um, making a pearl of our vulnerabilities. And I love that expression because that totally sums up how I feel about vulnerability. It's its the good stuff in a lot of ways. Yeah, it's really the ingredients of our humanity. Mm. I mean, we're all vulnerable and we feel it at different moments. And so when we, when we touch into our vulnerability, we touch into our humanity and, and, sh- and sharing that makes us closer with another person. Uh, and I talk about in that chapter also that, there are certain vulnerabilities, core vulnerabilities that are at the center of our gifts. 
And it, there's almost like um, having the the strength and the wholeness to be able to keep listening and stay present to our vulnerabilities is partly what allows us to find our deepest gifts. Hmm. It's not yeah. something to run from. It's something to welcome. Mm. As best and so for someone who has been go, 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 actually wants to feel more connected, more interwoven in the earth, in the landscape of all the different creatures on our planet, with trees uh, and with their family even, like with the more practical aspects of the structure of our culture. Um, listening to the mystery within is a, 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 a practice um, that a lot of people don't know where to start. Where would you invite people to start? That's great. Yeah, I, I mentioned that one in the first chapter because it, it's key. Mm. Are these uh, these bodies that we have, you know, they're like wild too. They're yeah. animals. These hearts that we have are animals. Part of wild nature, of course, you know, they've grown up in a domesticated culture. So we have all, all sorts of urges and voices and differing conflicting parts of ourselves. But, it, you know, our very nature, our very biology, the cellu- our cellular makeup is animal it's of the earth and so i think you know the basic thing is just to start with coming back to the body just coming back i mean one of the things we're taught to do in our culture is not be in our body to be disembodied to live our head um to sit in a desk i used to work as a school counselor elementary school counselor as well as going through school myself and it's you know you kind of get taught to put away your imagination to put away your toys to you know to put away your body into, to stuff it into a chair for many hours a day, to stuff knowledge into your head, memorize stuff so you can get good test scores. At least that's how it was in the the schools where I went and where I worked. And, you know, there's a, there's a way that it takes some effort to bring ourselves back into our body, to welcome ourselves back in and say, uh, this is a place that's important to have it. There can also be trauma in the body. Like it's uncomfortable. We, you know, either personal traumas from uh, your family of origin or friends or, you know, bullies, or it could be even just cultural, cultural trauma that has lodged in the body. Um, or even just a, a sense like this sense that I I can't be in my body. I have to stay in my head and I have to do this stuff and I have to achieve this stuff and I can't stop. Um, but the basic thing, if we're to come into the wild and we're to come into the mystery that lives in the wild is to just drop into our body. And it really is a a practice and that takes time and, and courtship. You know, one simple practice I often say, tell people to start with is what would it be like to lie on your yoga mat or lie in your bed and just lie there until you really wanted to move until you really like had an intrinsic motivation moving you. Not just, oh, I have to, or I need to, or this is the movement to do. Um, You know, how can I come back into that sense of how my body actually feels and actually naturally wants to move? And that starts us out with just listening and what's happening. Once we start tuning into our body, like we might tune into radio stations or, or we might tune into nature, there are so many possibilities that can come. I often call the body like a dream. You know, just like we can listen to our nighttime dreams where images come, we can listen to our body and all sorts of things arise, unbidden surprises, not directed by our mind, but they seem to come from somewhere else. 
I say, you know, what if the body knows more than the mind? I think it does. It holds things that the mind has forgotten about, maybe for good reason. Um, it's important to to be present to the body and allow ourselves to see what wants to bubble up. There's so many possibilities of what it could be, whether it's, you know, old traumas or, or hurts or parts of ourselves could be, you know, aspects of our soul or the purpose we're here to live. It could be um, ancestral, past life. And sometimes I don't try too hard to figure out, well, which one is it then? <laughs> I just, yeah. I just, because it's like, this is the experience the body's wanting me to have. So what if I just pay attention to that? It's obviously a way to stay connected to my body is to just listen to whatever it's giving me. Awesome. And so you mentioned you're a school counselor. <clears throat> I was in my early twenties. Yes. How did this whole journey then unfold for you? Well, you know, speaking of the body, a uh, part of it was when I had cancer. I write about that a little bit starting in the introduction of my book. But when I was 21, a senior in college, um, I was diagnosed with cancer and um, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. And uh, that that sort of took me um, out of what I my plans. That knocked my plans away and changed the trajectory of my life. I was a raised Catholic, but I was a philosophy, religious studies major questioning, like, what is God or goddess? And is there one? And what do they want of me? Um, and I feel like in some ways, the cancer came as an answer to that question. Because I got a direct experience of a higher power. Like suddenly, I'd always known nature to be a higher power. Like I was, I'm a nature mystic. Um, God lives in the trees and in the rivers and in the oceans. But I didn't really know if there was a God anywhere else or a goddess, you know. And when I had cancer, um, I had to stop doing everything that I was doing. And I was an achiever. I was editor of my newspaper. I was an RA. I was an A student. I was a major in psychology, philosophy, religious studies, writing minor. You know, I was just like, I had so much energy and enthusiasm and also pushed myself very hard. Well, suddenly I was ill. I had to drop all extracurricular activities and I was down to three courses only. And then I just had to sit with myself. In that sitting with myself, I discovered a sacred presence, not only in nature, but inside of me. Um, something that I felt clearly sure was there, but I still didn't know exactly what it was or how to have a relationship with it. But it felt like, like a door had opened, a door into like a dark mystery. And I had the longing to know more and I wanted to know more. And in some ways I hated cancer. You know, I hate hospitals and chemicals and being ill, but in some ways the spiritual and soulful things that opened up to me then were, you know, astonishing. And that took me on a whole different trajectory in life. Um, and I feel like uh, when I got to be 29 and I started studying with animus, like uh, the world of soul opened back up to me that I had, touched into when I had cancer. And I also, you know, studied yoga and spiritualities and uh, meditation. And uh, so I, I was just, in, I've always been in love with like the whole of it, you know, like soul and spirit are both in my book, the soul journey and the totality of everything, the spirit world. Well, the things you chose to study at uni were definitely indicative of that 
that desire to uh, think as big as possible about how everything's connected exists and and what it all means, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm. I've And I've always lived in nature. You know, I was an outward bound instructor in my 20s mm-hmm. while I was working as a school counselor in the summers. And then ultimately, after a few years, I became a wilderness therapist and worked with people, families and kids in the wilderness full time. And then ultimately a wilderness guide for wild yoga and for Animus Valley Institute. So I've just lived, I'm 50 and I've pretty much lived most of my adult life going into wild places. And nature has been the biggest teacher for me personally and with others. And that's woven throughout, you know, wild yoga from my experiences. Yeah. Big time. And uh, I remember in our first conversation, we talked about connecting uh, on a deeper level with nature and becoming one with it. Um, And in this book, you talk about receiving the love of trees, which I think is gorgeous. Uh, And I don't think there's anyone who's ever been on a bushwalk or in the forest who hasn't felt like there's just this deeply excellent uh, feeling that you have in this space. Um. Can you talk to us about, um, uh, about I guess, like I'm thinking about those beautiful big strong trees especially where you can't even like make your hands go around the trunk and how they're so strong and, and majestic and it just feels like they're the rulers of the planet really. Um, we might put people at desks and call them the prime minister but <laughs> the tree's got so much more on them I reckon. I agree completely. Wow. I love, I love how you speak so honoring of trees. And, um, you know, it's funny as we're talking about them here and I'm talking with you in Australia, I'm remembering the eucalyptus trees mm. that are in Australia, just so big and tall and, you know, powerful and the smell so, you know, potent and unique and very different from the trees that I grew up in with, you know, I, the ash tree in my backyard and the pine trees down in the forest and the maple tree in the front yard and different than the trees out here, uh, the ponderosa pine and the aspen tree um, and the pinion are very common trees, the spruce. Oh, I love spruce. I love the the smell. Yeah. And the cottonwoods too are really beautiful that live here along the rivers. There's just so many beautiful trees and they're all, I agree with you, so wise, especially the ancient ones, you know, we can really feel their wisdom. They're older than us, you know, they're wiser than us. And I speak about that a lot in my book, the forest community, I see really, I posit as wiser than us and how they give to everybody in their community. They give to children, they give to old ones, they give to even stumps and dying trees, they give to sick ones. And they also give to other species. They give uh, food and home to insects and birds and um, animals. Uh, they give their scent. They give their shade. They give their oxygen. You know, it, it's very likely we wouldn't be able to be alive if there wasn't trees here on the planet giving their oxygen so that we can breathe. You know, they're they're kind of our lifeblood. And uh, I I think about that too in terms of love. What what would life be without love? It's hard to be motivated to do anything or go anywhere when we're feeling unloved. We're just it's just so brokenhearted in us. Whatever the reasons or stories we might have in our head about why we feel that way. And to me, forests are just a fountain of love. 
they just that's just their presence the way they are with each other and anything that steps into their field uh, most trees and so i've spent a lot of time in forests and that's what i write about and receive the love of trees uh, i felt like self-love has always been a challenge for me you know when i was especially in my 30s when i was just coming into doing all this work like i would run into the roadblocks of lack of self-love at different places and the trees were always there to teach me um, how to love i i would sing to them that was a soul song i had teach me how to love and the trees really did answer my my call they not only loved me when I leaned my back against them and laid in their presence, but they also taught me what it's like to love myself from the inside out and to be with myself. And if there's moments that difficult feelings are coming or there's parts of myself that aren't loving myself or life, that I can call in the presence of the trees within me to hold myself and hold whatever part of myself is struggling in love. And that just can spill out to other people in my life too. Yeah, beautiful. And and often it takes that external reminder, whether it's a tree or whether it's a, um, I don't know, like this morning, uh, funny that um, this just popped into my head, but I have a super sore pinched nerve at the base of my thumb at the moment that's absolutely excruciating. And I sat down for breakfast with my son. I did everything with my right hand. I'm left-handed. And uh, and I we sat down for breakfast and I said, my stupid hand, it still hurts. <laughs> and my son said, don't call yourself stupid. That's a part of you. Uh, you know, what a wise little 13-year-old. And I was like, you're absolutely right, gorgeous. Yeah, my poor hand, it's really struggling. This part of me is really in pain at the moment. And... Um, and I want to send it love, not hate it for not doing what I want it to do. And it was just this wonderful little 10 second reframe that kind of speaks to exactly what you were talking about. We often don't like parts of ourselves, whether that's, you know, you're ashamed of a feeling you're having or a reaction you've had or a fat roll on your abdomen. I mean, there are just so many things that pass through us as negative thoughts, um, that chip away at our ability to love ourselves, I think, if you're not conscious of them, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's there's there's so many things. And, you know, even despite myself doing this work, and I think anyone that there's still moments, just like the moment you described, where we can catch ourselves. It's great you had someone there, your son, to witness, mm. that, you know, say, what if we switch the, di the uh, dialogue here with yourself? Yeah. Uh, you know, because there are, it's it's so hard when it comes down to, I always say, for me, it's always been easier to love other people than myself. I was, you know, I was a psych, formerly a psychotherapist, a guide, I hold space for others. Um, and the trees have really taught me a lot about loving myself, like you said, in the parts of self that are struggling, whether it's physically, emotionally, or, or whatever. How can mm. I hold that part with love? It's, it's not easy, but it's, it's so necessary. And so let's go on a proverbial walk in a forest then or walk uh, among the gum trees if if that's where we are in Australia. And, and how would we go about connecting in a way that therefore fuels a greater sense of self-love? Like what does that actually look like? What did it look like for you, for example? What did you hear from the trees? Well, um, I would go out into the trees and I would, 
lie down underneath them or I loved putting my back against the tree. Mm. You know, I think one of the things that I always long for is feeling like somebody had my back. Mm. And love my that. Back, when I had my back against a tree, somebody did have my back and I could really feel it. My heart could really feel it and I could really relax. And my conversation was with the trees many times would would be confessing, um, I'm not loving myself right there, right now. I would I actually shared an example in my book of a dialogue that I had where I got triggered from a conversation with my mother and I wasn't not feeling self-love and I went out to the trees that that I had a relationship with, a juniper tree. And I said, I think I'm struggling. I'm not loving myself now. And so I talked to the tree and the tree just opened me to a whole other perspective, a whole other conversation about, um, you know, like kind of like not taking what humans do so seriously, not mm. uh, whatever they say and do, you know, they're, they're, you know, humans are kind of, you know, they're messed up, you know, like, let's face it. <laughs> and there's so much self-importance, isn't there? And like, both individually and as as societies. It's like, oh, God, we don't know anything. Half the time you look at what nature's doing, you're like, really? We're the ones in charge? That makes no sense. Totally agree. Mm. And, um, yeah, and the tree was able to open me to just this larger scope of perspective. I mean, trees, they told me they feel the pain of all the trees in the world. Like the trees are connected to other trees, even trees not just in their forest and and so there's a scope to being attentive to to the grief and the struggle, but also being able to just um, to let it go and be present with the ones around you too, and be present with yourself. So they taught me like the capacity to love, even even in the midst of of heartbreak and struggle, and when there's loss and when you know things happen or people are mean or misunderstand or or whatever you know all the things that people do. Um, they take me back to a to a different a different way of seeing and perspective that enables me to hold a hold a lightness around moments and what people say and opens me up into the deeper stream of love. Mm-hmm. And, and then, I call I call them in my imagination too. I'll just say when I can't be there physically mm-hmm. and I'm struggling, you know, what would what would the trees say right now? What would they do? You know, if there's things that happen. And so are you having these conversations out loud or are they in your head that you're talking to the trees? Like, uh, because people are like, so do I just go out into the forest and start talking like out loud? I'm sure that conversation, that question is out there in the universe as people listen right now. And they really want to really understand what this looks like. Yeah. I mean, I actually do talk to nature out loud. Mm. I mean, sometimes when I sit against a tree, my body is having a conversation with the tree and there's no need for words. Mm. The conversation is happening physically and that's all that needs to happen. But especially if I was really struggling or just if I want to, I I will speak out loud to the tree. And sometimes the tree does talk back. Not always. I don't listen expecting a response. It's not like coffee talk, like because I said something, (laughs) you you say something. I mean, Trees might not feel like talking to me and that's okay if they don't. Um, but I'm there and available to the possibility of that conversation. And a big piece of it is being open to one's imagination. Imagination gets a bad rap. You know, usually we're taught in kindergarten to put it away, but well, practice of listening to nature and most of the practices in wild yoga 
involve calling our imagination back. It's vital. It's vital to our mission. And uh, I call particularly the deep or the wild imagination uh, when things bubble up by surprise, you know, like um, if I'm creating something or writing something, my egoic mind might be partly involved and then my imagination partly involved and we're traveling together with my mind having an idea and my imagination having an idea and then we're kind of going back and forth. But the deep imagination is a little bit different. It's like I do the best I can to clear my mind. It's not always easy to do that, but I do the best I can to clear my mind and then to just wait and see if anything comes. And oftentimes we know it's from the deep imagination when we're surprised, like I would have never thought of that. I would have, those words, that image, that dream, that memory, that feeling would have never come to me. So it, it's something, it came from somewhere, but certainly wasn't what I expected. A lot of times too, when the response is mysterious, like we get a response and we're like, well, what does that mean? Or so that my dream image from last night came up in response. You know, what does that mean? Well, it's often means something, even when we don't know exactly what it means. So being able to listen, you know, the first name, I write about this in chapter two, but the first name that I ever got on my very first quest when I asked, what is my soul name, was Braveheart. Well, I, I had some ideas about what that could mean. First, I just said, no, 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 that's a movie. <laughs> Um, <laughs> you already packaged it up to mean something as a like a reaction that's so but that's so classic like people will um connect to that and go oh gosh I probably would have said the same thing in fact as soon as you said Braveheart all I could see was Mel Gibson on a horse right <laughs> like, no 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 that can't possibly be me that's not that's not anything like me yeah and you know but I had images bubble up I had images of times in my life I wasn't brave and then I had images of times in my life I was, and I felt emotionally very different in those times. So those bubblings, and they've evoked a lot of emotion. And like, it became clear, like, oh, I think that there's something to this. I think that's who I am. But even then, I couldn't quite take it on fully. You know, I'm a big toe dipper, you know, it's like, oh, maybe this is true, but mm, I'm not sure. I had to spend the next six months kind of waking up in the middle of the night, writing poetry and crying to suddenly begin to grasp by the nature of what I was writing. I think the wild world was right. Braveheart is my name. That's who I'm supposed to be. So I better, you know, apprentice to what that is. Like, what is the call there? What does that really mean? What is that asking of me? And then, oh, first it's asking me to come back into my heart. <laughs> There's mm. ways my heart is, is frozen and I don't feel a lot. So And that vulnerability piece comes into play. Yeah. Exactly. And there's so many steps. I mean, that name was given to me 20 years ago and so many other pieces of my soul image, but I'm still living into the, the mysteries of that name, even with ecological revolution coming to me in the last few years for the end of my wild yoga book, you know, Braveheart is very much involved in that. So, you know, when we get a response from nature, it might not be understandable at once and we might not believe it right away. And it's okay to hold the mystery of it. We can honor something and acknowledge the importance of what we receive, even if we don't fully understand the meaning. Hmm. And how do you decide the validity of the person who gave you that name, that calling? 
like, you know what I mean? It's like, oh, you don't know me. No, that's got nothing to do. Like kind of like what you talked about when you first received it, almost like an instant rejection. But what makes you trust that that is actually a, a valid exploration um, and well, undertaking? One of the things that helped me with that first name is I was fasting at the time mm-hmm. and it was the third day of my fast on solo. So I was, my ego was weak. And for and the people it, who don't know what solo means, we're talking about that experience in the wild with literally nothing other than yourself, right? Right. I yeah. actually don't like calling it solo because I'm like, well, there's lots of beings around. We're yes. not really on solo, yeah. but we're on human solo like no other humans are around and i'm immersed nature on my own for three days and i'm fasting Uh, i lead ceremonies like that for other people and i've been on ceremony myself and this was where i received that name braveheart was the first time i'd ever been on a ceremony like that and it was on the third day when i was the weakest so my normal mental blocks that might have successfully stopped that from coming in were we're gone. So that's one way um, that that can help us, you know, really be able to hear. But like I said, even that being the case, I still wasn't a full believer right away in that name. Oftentimes we get messages again and again uh, before we truly believe them. But one of the things that happened in that moment that I got that name was that it was very, it was very emotional and it was like um, being seen. It's like when somebody catches you, you know, and they like see you, and you can't, you can't unsee, you can't undo it because it's already, been, it's already been glimpsed, and you can feel it in your bones. So it's, it's done. You know? hmm. Yeah. Nice. Um. We, you've talked about actually in a previous chat that we had on the show, which I'm encouraging everybody to go back and listen to. It's more focused on uh, your work with Animas and journeying into the wild and, and what that can be like for people when they undertake that the first time. Great conversation. We talk as well about like relating to different beings and how they come up in us uh, and what they can teach us when we try to relate to them. And we've talked about that with the trees and I know I'm drifting from the book a little bit here, but I think it's a subject that's really interesting for people uh, to explore, like creatures that we're scared of and, and maybe that's a creature that you actually need to connect with in some way, like it becomes your teacher can you share an experience of that in your own life as you've journeyed more and more into wild being? Yeah, a creature in my own life that I've been. Mm. Uh, well, I would say, you know, there's, you know, one creature is the dark um, or the dark, what I call the dark waters. Uh, on my very first quest, I would never have said I was scared of the dark because I was a wilderness guide. And I'd often been out in the dark alone. And so I thought, well, this is fine. But secretly, I had planned to be asleep whenever it was dark while I was on solo. And I was frustrated because it wasn't happening. I wasn't falling asleep, hardly at all. And so I couldn't just 
stay in my sleeping bag. I had to get out and face the dark. And what I realized in my body is just that there was a lot of fear, you know, uh, tightness, you know, like just not wanting to be there. And so it was the beginning of re recognizing our fear is the beginning of a conversation. It's like, oh, wow, you know, I'm, I'm struggling here. And I was on a big gray sparkly rock that had called me to that particular spot. And, you know, the rock was just like, you know, just practice relaxing. And it, it was, you know, years of kind of coming into a relationship with the dark after that, that was just the, the introduction because I was coming to know the dark in a much different way. It wasn't just the nighttime, you know, in the wilderness. It was, it was like, it was like the whole world, it was like worlds that I couldn't see all the stuff that was unknown in the shadow out of my conscious reach, a journey that was calling me in the darkness to let go of life as I had known it and step into the dark unknown and be able to engage with my imagination where I could listen to a deeper calling. So there was a lot more to the dark than I had originally thought. And that's why my body was reacting in this, you know, very, very afraid state. And even still, the dark has continued um, to be part of the journey, what I call the dark waters, which have always been something that courted me. I lived near the Chesapeake Bay when I grew up and uh, would go there at night and stare into the dark waters and feel this like allurement, this desire to go in the ocean waters at night, you know, into the full darkness when, but at the same time, kind of scared because you just, you know, it's really dark at night. You really can't see anything. And uh and, and a nightmare that I had that actually pulled me down into the dark waters that actually the, in the dream, um, I'm swimming at night in the ocean with other people. And suddenly someone comes underneath me and pulls me by the leg and pulls me down. But the feeling is like free falling. Like I'm, I feel literally like I'm falling off a building, but I'm falling down in the water. It's just to such, such deep depths that the water pressure feels crushing. And I can feel my grief for the world um, and also just kind of a sense of just being called to just be with, not not get out of, not try to make better, but to just allow myself to be with the crushing pressure and the and the grief. And, you know, so those are some examples of where um, the dark a being has invited me, the dark waters in particular, particular um, that has terrified me and, and has actually ended up being part of you know, my mythic name, I named it in my book, but the full mythic name, Braveheart was the first adjective that came that I apprenticed to for six years, but Bravehearted, a wild love prayer bear who swims in the dark waters, a witness to horror and beauty. And so, you know, the dark waters were a, a being that I was terrified of, but I had to encounter and be in with relationship with to, to be able to step into my calling. Mm. Wow. A question has just come up and I want to ask it because um, a lot of people in westernized or developed countries um, and developed obviously meaning drifted away from uh, the natural state of things rather than uh, some kind of prize for being uh, more advanced or something. Um, Indigenous people, First Nations people, I I feel like we're on the precipice of 
really understanding just how much we can learn from uh, people who have lived on the land longer than um, colonising people and their descendants have and the relationships that they have. But I also feel that there is perhaps a, oh, well, that's not me, so I don't have that kind of relationship with nature like a First Nations person or a an Indigenous person would. So it it it's an invitation as well as a I can't be um, like or I don't know if you understand what I'm trying to say, but do you? I, th- I think so. I think I got it. So correct me if I'm wrong. You know, one of the, one of the, you know, blessings of being an indigenous person on the land is that, you know, your, is that your parents, or your grandparents, you know, not too far removed back, people lived on the land and listened and talked to the land and listened to their dreams and were in ceremony and depth. And it's in the last few hundred years that or last hundred years, or, you know, maybe a bit more than hundred years where that started to get, um, that got crushed and, and killed and taken. Um, but all of us come from indigenous peoples somewhere in history, um, in, on some land, maybe not the, you know, the land, likely not the land where we're presently limit, living, you in Australia and me here in the United States, you know, my ancestors are from Ireland um, and England and uh, Sweden area and who knows where before that but uh, but originally if we go back far enough um, there's ancestors that also were people that listened to the earth and the land I've connected a bit with my Irish ancestors and my Swedish ancestors through Norse mythology you know my name wild bear um, comes from my grandfather in a way he uh his name um his last name stromborn which is norse um, means river bear and so air that has come back through me is connected to the ancestral bear that was um in my that family line i believe uh so we have um we have ancestors too they can just be harder to connect to because we have so many more centuries of um abuse you know, uh, between um, us and other peoples, between our, our original ancestors, you know, abuse, white people dominating white people, white people dominating colored people. You know, it's there's a whole history uh, of oppression that killed that uh, original spirit. But if we have the same cells and molecules as the earth, and we have the capacity to imagine that the earth is here, there are ways we can tap back in. It can take time and patience and effort, but we can, and I think we, you know, we must. And it's also a joy to be able to have that connection. And do you feel like that is why perhaps some people find it hard to connect? Like I know when I'm in France, which is my the majority of my ancestry, or in Scotland. There is a piece I achieve, a sense of connection to land, to people, just the smells, everything just feels so right beyond my being able to explain why. Uh, I've never even lived in either of those places. I've just been in those places. And every time I am in those places, 
connecting to nature feels um, safe and inviting and uh, makes sense. I feel much more confident barefoot and maybe that's because there's no spiders that can kill you. I don't know. But uh, <laughs> but it just feels like I fit and um, and I don't have an explanation for that. I don't feel like I fit in Australia. What does that tell you? What does that tell me? What What is the conversation that you're inviting me to explore there? Well, that's great. I mean, it seems like there could be, you know, interesting things in exploring both the edge of the Australian landscape where you you live and have lived for a long time and uh, and also your family of origin land and the conversation there. And there would probably be interesting threads to follow in in both conversations. But I can, you know, I can relate to what you're saying. There's a, a levels of indigenosity that Bill mentions, Bill Plotkin mentions in his wild that I love. He mentions three levels of, of indigeneity, you know, that there's there's an indigeneity that comes from living on the land where you were born and your ancestors were born. Um, now, not too many people have that in, in the world anymore. Some people do, but not that many. So that, but that's a very significant and very important level of indigeneity. Um, there's also the level of indigeneity that your ancestors are still, you know, still part of that, the land and the conversation. And then there's, um, there's also a level of indigeneity that's just of the earth. I'm of the earth. So I have the capacity to connect to my, to an indigeneity that knows it's, it's belonging nature on the earth. And I think that, you know, in Western culture, we're still exploring, well, what is that? You know, what does that mean? And, and, and I can relate to that sense of um, homelessness. I, you know, I love, I live here in the U.S. in Southwest Colorado and have lived here 16 years and, you know, been to many other beautiful wild places too, and fall in love with every wild place and love it and even love here where I live. But there's something about it doesn't quite feel like home. Like I'm, like there's a longing in me for a land that's like my home. And I've been to Ireland um, and there, I love Ireland. That's one of my ancestral homes. But, you know, I, I, something has still not rung true. And I, I wonder if it's, you know, I call it the, you know, my, my, this is, I haven't written this, but this is a personal, like, is this a white man's disease of, you know, being able to go anywhere on the earth, but not feel at home anywhere in particular? Um, because we're, you know, wherever our peoples originally from was taken and can we get back to that? But there is a, I think a level of indigeneity that is missing for me. It is that comes with feeling like not only do I love this wild place, but it is home. The closest representation to home that I have in my body is when I go back to there's certain wild lands that are in national parks that I take people that I guide people in. And I've been there over a decade every year I go like on pilgrimage to take people there and those places actually feel more like home to me than any place in civilization when I go there my whole body just goes oh we're here we're home like we belong here and I look forward to going every year so you know I think there's a significance to to paying attention to the different conversations that our body is having with each particular place and what it has to teach us about 
indigeneity in our bodies in in these times and and how to be in deeper relationship with the earth mm. yeah i remember writing a song when i was um in my mid 20s and i was doing gigs with friends around um pubs and bars and I loved that time and I remember writing a song called Home because I had just come back from Europe and visited my family and this feeling of just crying with so much sadness leaving them but of course being excited to come home see mum and dad and friends and um, it's really more about people than land in that consciousness writing that lyric but I remember it was too many things feel like home um always hello always letting go and my heart feels like violins and sunshine all at once and it was like a just like pulling and happy sad like like this tip of scales just always happening inside me uh, and I think a lot of people feel like that when you start to really have deeper conversations with people, whether that's about like being a mum and, you know, I really want to do my meaningful work, but gosh, I really want to care for this little, there are things pulling. And what I love, I was just kind of coming back to the book now because you have this um, this ability to help us usher in the discomfort as well as find comfort in it. And I think that's a really beautiful gift that you've given us with this book because that's, you know, people feel uneasy when they feel uncomfortable about things. But if we can step into it, there can be a great comfort in the exploration of that. Um, uh, And I just think that's super cool. I think you've done an amazing job. Yeah, thank you so much for tracking that. That's, you know, that's something I think I haven't, you know, put it like that quite before, but it's it's a powerful way of of looking at it. There is a discomfort in in everything. Sometimes even receiving love, that can seem like a wonderful thing, but it could be a real edge or place of discomfort for someone and or feral ferocity, maybe feeling ferocity is. is yes, your three Fs, female, fer- feral, female ferocity, right? Mm-hmm. Can you share a little bit about that? Because that, you know, ferocity might sound really aggressive and awful, but you paint a different picture of what that is. Yeah, you know, I, I agree that there is anger and violence that can be toxic and harmful. There's a lot of it that's harmed people, harmed harmed women, harmed the earth. But also there are aspects to anger or ferocity that can arise in us that can be natural and healthy. Um, I use the example of like a snake protecting itself or a scorpion. It's, it's little on the food chain, but that doesn't stop it from protecting itself if its space gets invaded, if its life is threatened. In our culture, uh, dominant culture, we operate by uh, unspoken hierarchy. You know, there's people that, can be angry and fierce and then there's other people that can't um or they'll be in trouble um there's ways you can't speak up like when it comes to for the earth you know if you're a corporation who's mining or uh you know you you're you have the legal right it's your right to just move in and feel how you feel do it do what you want take what you want and stopping that or being angry about that is seen as like well that's you know that's a problem step aside yeah Yeah, get over it Mm. um so 
you know, our ferocity and our natural desire to have boundaries and protect ourselves like the snake and the scorpion, that's what I'm referring to as a feral female ferocity. Um, you know, like a mother bear protects her young. This protective instinct, whether it's for our own bodies or for those we love or for the natural world that we love, it's a healthy instinct and it shouldn't be quieted or dumbed down. It actually should, you know, come out and cause trouble. And we should, uh, you know, welcome feral female ferocity in ourselves, whatever our sex or gender. And we should call forth those ones in the world um, to actually get to speak and, and have power and, and step in and have their voices be heard. Ah, so good. And what, what an amazing place to end this conversation and hopefully begin people's journey into picking up a copy of your book, Wild Yoga. I think it's an invitation to see yoga far beyond the clever backbends uh, and uh, triangle poses being able to be held for three minutes uh, and really invites us to step into a, a big, connected life. So thank you for writing it. And thank you so much for joining me on the show again. I love our conversations. I feel like I could speak to you for hours. Great. Thank you so much. I'm so, I'm so grateful to have been here and so glad you liked my book and um, enjoyed this conversation with you and your questions too. And, and if people want to reach out and find me, um, I have a website, RebeccaWildBear.com, um, www.rebeccawildbear.com. And you can find how to order my book there. You can find out about more wild yoga programs, or you can just get my email address and email me if you have more questions or are interested in talking about wild yoga. Um, so stay connected. I also sometimes am in Australia. I've worked yes, with- Yes, uh, you are. I work with Soulcraft Australia. They have their own website. And I just did some programs at Mount Wollumbin uh, real recently. And was oh, up and beautiful. For the first time. Great people up there. We had such an amazing time doing Soulcraft and Prayers in the Dark. And so, yeah, you might want to stay connected with me through my website or see what's going on if I'm in the area sometimes and, and me and other guides as well for Soulcraft Australia. Lovely. And what a great thing to be able to connect with for the Aussies listening. Thank you so much, Rebecca. Thank you. Thank you. And that is today's show. Thank you so much for tuning in. A reminder, we have so many fantastic shows in our archives these days. If this particular topic was helpful to you, head over to lowtoxlife.com forward slash podcast and click on the podcast directory, which gives you food, body, home, mind, and environmental health topics segmented so you can see all the shows that we've done in all of those areas and head straight to what you want. A reminder, we also have 10 fabulous e-courses that I've written with various doctors, naturopaths, health professionals, and experts over the years to support you on your low-tox journey, whether it's making daily swaps, getting ready to make babies, looking after your inflammation, you can hit the courses tab on lowtoxlife.com to explore those. And lastly, I would love to meet you on socials. Go and head over to at lowtoxlife on Instagram or find us on Facebook. It's always such a pleasure to chat and see how you guys are going when you share favorite shows and share them with your friends. I absolutely love that. A little reminder, of course, that all of our shows are not intended as medical advice. 
They are intended to open the minds and hearts of people and maybe help you explore something you hadn't considered yet, but please always check in with your health professional. And one last little request. If you have time to leave us a review wherever you listen to this podcast, that would just mean the world to me because it helps us get out there and have other people have confidence that that thing they're considering pressing play on is absolutely worth it. I'll catch you for the next show you tune into. Thanks for joining me again. This is Alex Stewart, founder of Low Tox Life.